Accounting for an estimated $25 billion in yearly sales in the United States alone, the dietary supplement industry is one of the fastest growing markets worldwide. While strategies for nutrition and supplement use are constantly evolving, the growing popularity and use of nutritional supplements has also led to an alarming increase in the number of athletes, both amateur and professional, testing positive for banned substances, further raising concern from ethical and safety standpoints. So, what do you need to know about supplements and their proper use? We'll talk to two of the country's top experts about the history and future of supplements and the topics they cover in their new book, The Athlete's Guide to Sports Supplements, on this edition of Kinetic Connections. Hello and welcome once again to Kinetic Connections, the official podcast of Human Kinetics, the premier publisher for sports and fitness. I'm Maury Williamson, marketing and publicity manager at Human Kinetics. On this edition, we welcome Kim Mueller, a registered dietitian and board-certified specialist in sport dietetics with vast experience working with athletes competing within the endurance and team sport arena. We also welcome Josh Hinks, the head strength coach with the Philadelphia Eagles and a specialist in the fields of nutrition and strength and conditioning. They are the authors of The Athlete's Guide to Sports Supplements, which offers a look at the most popular supplements to give readers the tools they need to assess, evaluate, and purchase those supplements that best fit their specific muscular, cardiovascular, and psychological needs. Kim and Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as we record this podcast, it's been just a few days since American 100-meter record holder Tyson Gay tested positive for a banned substance and pulled out of the upcoming World Championships. At this time, we don't know what the substance was or why he was using it, but an interesting thing about Gay is that his health had improved quite a bit this season after dealing with constant hamstring and groin ailments, along with a surgically repaired hip. So that kind of leads me to my first question. In general, how do the two of you define dietary supplements and the different ways they are utilized by athletes? Well, in the United States, uh, dietary supplements are actually classified as a food, whereas interesting elsewhere, they might be classified as a drug or another product. And uh, when you think about what they, they might entail, they're really going to be a combination of one or more ingredients, such as vitamins, minerals, herbals, fibers, fatty acids, and amino acids. And um, they're designed to supplement whole food intake. I do believe that many athletes feel pressure, whether it be from sponsors, coaches, or just an internal drive, to perform better. And when you're recovering from injury, as with Tyson's case, it certainly can escalate this pressure. And so many athletes lean on various supplements with the hope that they might get some kind of added boost to their performance and health. Yeah, that's interesting because any magazine you pick up, any kind of fitness magazine, health magazine, you see tons of advertisements for supplements. And they're marketed in a number of different ways. We see everything from an athlete's, you know, one that says it can enhance an athlete's ability to build lean muscle mass to ones that say they can improve energy levels during workouts. So how does the way sport nutritional supplements are advertised affect athletes? Because data indicates 70 to 90% of collegiate Olympic-level athletes supplement with at least one ingredient. So it seems to be working quite well, don't you think? Yeah, to kind of comment on that, marketing and advertising are obviously very powerful tools that can be used. So many of these supplement companies, if you any popular magazine, whether it be Men's Fitness or any of those types of magazines, you know, they really are dominated by advertisements of supplement companies. And within those advertisements are usually always these portraits of these massive, lean bodybuilders who, who pretty much cannot get that type of appearance without the use of some sort of illegal substance. Yet uh, the perception or what the magazines are obviously presenting is this idea that this can be achieved through supplementation or eating right or proper nutrition. I think a lot of athletes buy into that. They see that look. They think they should look that way. 
There's obviously a link between body composition and performance. However, it's not nearly as strong as many athletes think. And I think a lot of times those advertisements and those claims of, of building power and muscle, they influence athletes into thinking and looking for ways that they can improve their performance. And supplements are oftentimes the route they take. The two of you work with different kinds of athletes, obviously. Josh with a, a pro football team, Kim with more like endurance sports. But in general, what kinds of athletes see the most benefits from vitamin and mineral supplementation? I'll uh, kind of let Kim jump in on that one. I think both of us probably have uh, some different influence. Obviously, most of the guys that I see that see benefits from those are ones who have very poor diets, athletes that are not getting adequate intakes of these vitamins and minerals from food sources. Kim will probably touch on this as well, but most of the science is telling us that supplementation above and beyond does not provide additional benefits, where sometimes I think that's the perception, especially in a lot of male sports. I know our athletes, they seem to think if, if obviously if some is good, then more is better, but that's not necessarily the case, and there aren't really advantages doing that. Well, I think there are specific cases where an athlete's dietary intake or and or consequent body stirs of a nutrient are insufficient and can or may contribute to compromised health and poor performance. Years ago, I worked with a professional athlete who thought it might help when her, when she was complaining of extreme fatigue and poor recovery times as she was getting ready for the Ironman World Championships. And it turned out that not only her dietary intake was lacking, but her storage levels were diagnosable with stage one anemia, um, and that's looking at iron in particular. And what I was able to do is by implementing more iron-rich foods into her whole food diet, and she also took an over-the-counter daily dose of supplemental ferrous glycinate. She was able to resume normal storage levels within eight weeks and ended up going on to, to podium at the, the World Championships just uh, a couple months later. That's one instance. Iron, iron would be one uh, indication if blood levels were to drop where supplementation might be beneficial. Another nutrient deficiency that is being diagnosed more and more is vitamin D. And while the jury's out still with respect to its impact on the athletic performance, we do know that its role in the body is now spanning beyond just maintaining healthy bones. And as far as athletes themselves, you know, how do they view dietary supplements? It seems like looking at some of the advertising, things like that, it kind of gives the impression that some of them can be used as a quick fix type thing for poor lifestyle choices like imbalanced nutrition, deficient sleep patterns. Is that one way athletes look at supplements or is there a whole wide variety of uh, reasons that they use them? I think it would be great for both Kim and I to comment. I feel like most of the time I predominantly am working with male athletes, and I feel like the predominant male perception is that aside from looking to food first or looking to build sort of the foundation of a, a good, healthy, solid diet, most of the males that I encounter feel and their view of supplements is that it's sort of like a cure-all for anything, that uh, as long as they're taking the supplement, that it might it provide the fuel and the energy that they need to maximize performance, and it's going to be sort of this amazing anabolic effect to their body, and that, like you said, in terms of poor lifestyle choices, that it's going to cover up the lack of sleep, the poor fruit and vegetable intake, and all those types of things, but that's really not the case, and as we know, that another way that I've heard them described is as compliments. And I think that's a very good way to, to put it. You know, they simply complement the foundation of a real solid nutritional diet. Yeah, I think from a female perspective, the, the athletes that I encounter, certainly you have a handful who, who believe that taking 
some of the weight loss supplements out there that are marketed will all of a sudden magically allow them to lose 10 pounds without doing any sort of work. Um, however, I do think most athletes understand that there is a certain level of work that goes into achieving a goal, and supplements are designed to really kind of supplement the work that they're doing in the gym, um, in the sporting arena, and that they have to consume a, a solid whole food nutrition when using a supplement in order to, to maximize results. I mentioned this in the introduction, but in regards to the ethical safety standpoints, we've seen an alarming increase in the number of amateur and professional athletes testing positive for banned substances. What does that say about the growing popularity and use of nutritional supplements? I think this is interesting from a couple of standpoints. I, I think, it, one, it speaks to the importance of sports nutrition and how the field of sports nutrition has evolved and how you have all these elite athletes who are looking to maximize their human potential, specifically using nutrition and their diets to do that. And we know largely that science has proven and, and given us a lot more understanding within the last 10 or 15 years of how to maximize that performance with food and nutrition alone. And then supplements have kind of fed into that. And really, when you're looking at the intricacies of sport and all the different variables that, that can affect performance, supplements has just grown into becoming a much more popular and vital aspect. I think the perception I, think, I know within uh, the youth athlete is that nearly every single professional athlete is taking some sort of sports supplement to maximize their performance. And I think with that alarm comes the need Obviously, for purity and safety and quality, I think that one of the differences is that we as consumers have grown much more conscious about the need and the desire for higher quality foods in terms of organic, locally grown produce, those types of things. But people don't view supplements like that, and they need to. They need to understand that the sourcing of supplements is not the same across brands and that the quality of what you're getting is not the same in one brand to the next. And that's going to create more and more need to help educate consumers on where and how they find these quality supplements. Well, let's look back at a bit of history. I thought it was interesting in the book. You mentioned how last year was the 100th anniversary of the actual coining of the term vitamin. And we go back not as far, but the United States Food and Nutrition Board established the recommended dietary allowances the RDA, in 1941. Can you talk a little bit about what the purpose of the RDAs was, is, and why is there still some debate as to whether they are sufficient to support the increased metabolic demands of an athlete? Sure. Uh, well, the RDAs are essentially designed just to provide some nutritional guidance to health professionals and the general public. And more specifically, they're, they're defined as levels of intake of essential nutrients that are judged to be adequate to meet the known needs of virtually all people. However, the mere fact that these values have changed 10 times since adoption, I think, speaks to the evolving nature of nutritional science. you got more and more individuals getting involved in sporting activity, and we know that there is an increased metabolic demand and increased needs for certain nutrients. However, I do find, I think, that what we're seeing in research is there's no evidence that supplementation with vitamin and minerals is effective for improving performances in athletic events, um, except in the rare cases where an individual is suffering from a specific deficiency, such as the example with iron I provided earlier. I think what's going on here is you got athletes who are expending an extraordinary amount of energy on a day-to-day basis with their training, but in that extra food consumption, the extra calories that they're consuming, that they're getting plenty of vitamins and minerals from the foods that they're consuming, and thus 
vitamin and mineral deficiencies are not going to help improve performance from, from what they're consuming with their whole foods. Okay, and sticking with a bit of history, another very popular thing now are sports drinks. You talk in the book about how the identification of the benefits of carbohydrate supplementation led to the creation of sports drinks. What does current research focus on in regards to the effects of carbohydrate on exercise? Well, the latest research really has looked at individual carbohydrate types and the combination of the carbohydrates and how that impacts your muscle's capacity for uptake and an ultimate endurance performance. So we found over the past 10 years that combining multiple carbohydrate sources, if you go back in history and look at the, the creation of Gatorade at University of Florida, which was designed to help the University of Florida football team, you're looking at a combination of just glucose, water, and salt. And scientists just found that the muscle's capacity for uptake was kind of capped off at about a gram per minute. Now, over the past uh, several years, it's found that when you introduce multiple carbohydrates, let's say you pair that glucose with fructose, uh, maybe add in a maltodextrin, that uptake rate goes up as high as 1.7 grams per minute. And this is extremely relevant when you look at athletes competing in the endurance arena. So it means that they have more fuel in the tank to carry their endurance during the later stages of an event. And I'll actually uh, add in just a little piece in terms of the strength and power athlete, I think the low-carb approach is obviously very popular, especially amongst the bodybuilding community, and that sort of filters its way into strength and power sports as well. But one thing we do know as well about glycogen and carbohydrate supplementation is that glycogen stores have a big influence in terms of creating the anabolic environment. Essentially, for a strength and power athlete, we're trying to move them and initiate stress, which can be very catabolic in terms of breaking muscle down and those types of things. But we want to provide the nutrition and put them in their body in an environment that's anabolic and muscle building post-exercise and optimizing glycogen stores and the restoration of glycogen stores is key to creating that sort of environment from a hormonal standpoint and then as well as uh, from a performance standpoint. Switching gears here a bit, in the book you write that most athletes consume plenty of protein from whole food intake to meet current recommendations, therefore supplementation is rarely needed. Josh, I'm sure you see an astronomical amount of food eaten at a typical NFL training camp, but are there situations where supplements can be more practical, and are there special populations of athletes for whom protein supplementation is needed from a health and performance standpoint? Yeah, I think that it certainly is. One, you hit the nail on the head when you said practical. For many of our athletes, one of the big things we're preaching is nutrient timing, the adequate consumption of nutrients in, before, during, and after exercise. And depending on the training environment, where the athlete is, what their circumstances are, protein supplements can be a very convenient and very practical way to safely provide that nutrition that that athlete needs before, during, or after training. So I think there's definitely that need from that standpoint. And then in addition as we know, many athletes have dietary restrictions, whether it be a food allergy in which they cannot consume dairy or eggs or nuts or something like that, or it be just a personal choice that they choose not to eat meat or those types of things, specialized vegan diets. Not all proteins are created equally, and athletes who are eliminating certain food groups from the diet need to make up for those high-quality proteins which are missing and those are going to be the types of athletes who are going to be in a high need for a, a specialized protein supplement. Yeah, I find the same thing. There's a, 
a number of endurance athletes, if you're hitting the, the peak of an Ironman training program, they might be training 20 to 30 hours a week and struggle to find the time or the energy to cook a meal rich in protein and oftentimes are away from home territory and will benefit from supplementing with a protein powder. And then you got also a large population of athletes that are now looking to lose weight, so they're following restricted energy intakes and might not be getting adequate protein from whole food where supplemental protein might be of benefit in those cases as well. Okay, and how about herbal and botanical supplementation? Is the research showing that supplements like ginseng actually live up to their promises? And uh, what are some of the safety concerns with herbal supplements? Herbal supplements, I think uh, it's one of, say, one of the more common supplements taken. It's actually estimated that one out of five athletes use some form of herbal supplement, including the likes of ginseng. And they're oftentimes found in the ever-so-popular energy drinks that are out on the market, things like Red Bull. The problem is, without the regulation of purity, you're getting a lot of herbal supplements are being found to have high levels of heavy metals and other toxins, and that could be a big safety issue for the athlete. With respect to the, the research right now, from looking specifically in athletic performance, it's currently lacking. Interesting. Well, let's shift a little to some of the supplement trends of the future and what people will be seeing in the years to come. The last few years, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of athletes competing in endurance events like marathons, triathlons, century rides. What kind of effect is that going to have on uh, supplement trends going forward? I think the explosion of sports drinks, gels, bars, chews, and all the different products out in the market speaks for itself. I do think because a lot of the people jumping into marathons in the endurance sports arena are also interested in helping their health, you're going to find a lot more products that are, are more whole food oriented. Um, using, For instance, using dates and figs as an energy source during a run or a bike ride, you're also going to find an influx of products that are using more organic ingredients. I also have found more customization of products, customization of nutrition. Um, you have companies like Infinite Nutrition, which custom blends ingredients such as carbohydrate, protein, aminos, caffeine, and electrolytes to, to, to create a sports drink designed to, to help the athlete. you got energy bars such as U-Bar, where you can actually mix ingredients to create a bar of your liking. you got supplement companies now that you can combine the vitamins and minerals that you need. So custom nutrition is certainly also a trend. The uh, supplements certainly aren't going away a- at all. You also mentioned an emerging field of study called nutrogenomics. Can you tell us briefly about that? It kind of goes in line with custom nutrition. essentially delves into the whole concept of you are what you eat. And more specifically, uh, nutrogenomics evaluates how foods affect our genes and how individual genetic differences can affect the way we respond to nutrients um, and other naturally occurring compounds in the foods that we eat. Right now, research is in its infant stages, but it is thought that in the near future, you'll be able to go to your doctor to determine your genetic makeup and in turn work with a nutritional professional to customize your diet to meet your unique physiological makeup. Um, Essentially, instead of utilizing drugs, we're going to be utilizing food as a mainstream treatment. Um, So if you you go back in time, Hippocrates was onto something. And what about the new wave of thinking that the root of many health issues may be inflammation? Is that going to affect the ingredients found in supplements as well? Definitely in terms of that. I mean, there's a number of different products and supplements that Kim and I both did research on that have evidence to show that they are anti-inflammatory in nature. 
there's definitely a link between inflammation and disease. That's pretty clear in the literature, and we know that inactivity and obesity have a link to that chronic state of inflammation as well. I think you do have to differentiate between chronic inflammation and acute inflammation. You know, as trainers and strength coaches and those types of things, we are actually eliciting sort of an inflammatory response, which is actually needed and wanted. We don't necessarily always want to suppress that. But from a general health standpoint, maintaining low levels and preventing chronic inflammation is an important wave of science, and supplements are going to continue to be a big fuel to help combat that. Okay, and Josh, you touched on this earlier, but a lot of athletes placing a big emphasis on the purity and safety of supplements. What kind of effect is that having on sport nutrition companies, and what is the likelihood that there will be more programs offering independent testing that ensure purity? I think that there's definitely a need for this, and I'd love to get Kim's thoughts on this as well, but I think it's a difficult thing because obviously doing these types of things, it requires money, and that's one of the first things that you see in in some of the differences between a quality supplement and one that might not be as high quality, but the brands that are willing to put up the extra dollars to get their supplements tested and validated for purity are very important. Luckily, there's good organizations out there like NSF, which do a lot of the testing, and their heart in the matter is, is to protect the consumer from any of these types of supplements that are impure. I know uh, from being involved with Infinite Nutrition and wanting and and really want to reach out to all levels of athletes that we allocate the, the money to ensure that the products that we're outsourcing are pure and are going to be safe for the elite and uh, competitive athletes who have increased risk of being tested and wanting a clean product. I do think it's something that Sports nutrition companies really need to look at and uh, kind of falling in line with NSF Certified Fair Sport. I think it's, there, there is certainly a need for it. Okay, you talk in the book about the deregulation of dietary supplements by the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act and uh, how the dietary supplement market was really able to turn into a, a hugely profitable industry. As a consequence of deregulation, however, you say there's certain risks that athletes, coaches, and parents of athletes should understand. Can you talk a little bit about those risks? Sure. What this act kind of uh, put in place, essentially, as long as there's no claims from the supplement that are made about preventing or treating a disease, they essentially have free reign to market their product without first demonstrating its efficacy and its safety. And therefore, the athletes and their circles support need to understand that not all the supplements that they might be taking contain exactly what they claim. And there's been several circumstances where supplements have contained other ingredients not included on the label, as well as inaccurate quantities of active ingredients. And and I think this is one reason why you're seeing more and more athletes being tested with products that they claim that uh, they didn't know they were taking, uh, because they're not, the, the, the purity of the substance hasn't been tested yet. Also, just because a supplement is labeled as natural, it doesn't ensure that it's a safe product you got a lot of people shopping online now, and just because a product's advertised online as being natural does not ensure that it's going to be a safe product or a clean product. Um, and then certainly there's a lot of unproven claims. And so a lot of the claims that are made with various supplements, whether it be from a weight loss perspective or an anabolic standpoint or boosting endurance, there is not legitimate scientific research to, to back up these claims. So those are the primary risks. You're not guaranteed to be getting exactly what's being provided to you. 
And I think you both agree that the hope for the future is that the dietary supplement industry will provide more scientific rather than testimonial-based evidence for the claims it makes. Do you have tips for athletes, coaches, parents, health professionals on how they can be proactive about researching the legitimacy of claims and reported risks associated with the supplement's ingredients? Certainly. That's one of the great things about the book. In Chapter 1, you know, there's a section that's basically tips for being a supplement-savvy athlete. And parents would fit into this category as well as they help with their youth athlete and whatnot. But one of the first things that we recommend is that you obviously find a healthcare professional or some an educated professional within the field of sports nutrition. And I think this is a very tricky field because just because even if someone's a dietitian, it doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't necessarily have an expertise in the field of sports nutrition, but they'll certainly have a good, strong background to provide some uh, evidence-based research on a supplement that you're looking for. And then the second thing that consumers can find in the book is just basically there's a table provided in the book that lists credible websites that parents can go to to look for solid information on supplements. Obviously, if you just use a Google search on a particular supplement, um, you're going to get a wide variety of hits, a large majority of which probably aren't going to provide a lot of credible information. And that's where I think the book can be very helpful for parents and for athletes as well. Wrapping up here, a couple more questions. Uh, cardiovascular muscle systems receive the majority of focus when evaluating the dynamics of sport performance. But as you point out quite obviously, it's an athlete's brain that really acts as the control center for many of the body processes that propel performance. What are some of the ways that specific nutrients and supplements can help the brain further optimize an athlete's success? I think one of the more commonly studied nutrients in this arena is, is caffeine. Certainly, it's been proven that the stimulant effects on the brain and the central nervous system activity can help the athlete to feel more alert with clearer flow of thought, increased focus, and better general body coordination. This is also translated to reduced ratings of perceived effort in soccer games, um, improved endurance performance and endurance events. That caffeine is certainly one that's been probably the most studied in this arena, but you also have carbohydrates, which are the, the brain's only source of energy. Without supplementation, we know that blood sugars can drop and an athlete can experience uh, fatigue known as bonking in the sporting arena. Um, omega-3s have kind of climbed up the, the ladder in this regard as well. They're normal constituents of cell membranes and essential for normal brain function. Research has shown that diets rich in omega-3 fatty acids, which can be found in things like fish oil, chia seeds, flax, um, can help support cognitive processes in humans, including athletes. Both of you mentioned earlier how uh, there are supplements for children and adolescent athletes. That might be surprising to some people, but we're not just talking about older teens and adults. But when it comes to children, adolescent athletes, what are some of the criteria for them using dietary supplements? This is a very tricky slope. I think there's there's three main things that it's important for youth and the younger athletes to consider. Now, first and foremost, there has to be the solid nutritional diet that's in place. Far too many times, I'm sure Kim has worked with athletes as well as myself, who come in and aren't necessarily getting the results that they're looking for. They might be a younger athlete. And when you look at their diets, there's just no consistency in what they're choosing to eat. There's no foundation of um, a good, solid approach to nutrition. So I think that's the first standpoint is that the athlete should always look at the diet first before even thinking about considering a supplement. The second one is before an athlete would start to dive into some of these supplements, they really need to have reached full maturity. 
and made it through the whole adolescent development process. For many athletes, that could be 18, 19 years old by the time that they hit that mark. But that's very, very important because, you know, a lot of the expectation is the athlete, these younger athletes, obviously see the magazines. They want to look like the bodybuilder, those types of things. And without having been through the stages of development they need to, they lack the hormones to really do that in a healthy way. And the third one is that younger athletes need to realize that it's definitely not a a quick thing. Many of these professional athletes train for 14, 15, 16 years. So we really highly recommend that an athlete would undergo at least two, be within some sort of structured training program, whether it be a structured endurance training program or strength and conditioning training program, for a minimum of two years before they start to look towards supplements. You know, I think supplements are sort of a specialized category uh, that's really towards the end of maximizing that human potential. So after an athlete has developed through the years and has seen and made continuing progress and is sort of reaching those upper limits of their potential and they're looking for that 1% to 2% edge, that's when they start to look towards dietary supplements. Great. And finally, our final question, there's definitely some different kinds of risks faced by female athletes, especially in terms of nutritional deficiencies. How can supplements be beneficial to the female athlete? I think one of the biggest problems I encounter with the female athletes I work with oftentimes has to do with calorie balance. You have a lot of athletes who are entering sports to lose weight, and they're following extremely restricted energy intakes, and that oftentimes also means that they're following some form of trendy diet where they're cutting major food groups out of their diet plan or even macronutrients with the trends of lower-carbohydrate diets being being marketed right now. Um, and the issue with that, you, you start to encounter micronutrient deficiencies as well. For restricted energy intake, some of the research I did 10 years ago when I was going through grad school looked at the impact of restricted eating on, on menstrual health, the health in female athletes. So you got a lot of athletes who are out training, let's say 10, 15 hours a week, and they're chronically under-consuming, under-reaching with their calorie intake. And research has found that this can lead to hormonal imbalances where menstrual cycle is lost. And we know that in research that lost the menstrual cycle, you lose that bone protective effect. So all of a sudden you got these female athletes who are developing um, osteopenia, osteoporosis, and having chronic issues with stress fractures. Um, in the sporting arena, this is known as the female athlete triad, but I think it's important when you're looking at recommendations from a supplemental standpoint. Certainly your first line of defense is always going to be helping that athlete develop a whole food nutrition plan that meets their training demands, making sure that they're getting adequate amounts of carbohydrates in their diet, making sure that they're getting quality protein sources in their diet, making sure that they're getting adequate amounts of fat in their diet. If energy restriction is going to help them lose weight and they're going to be following restricted intake, generally it's recommended in the off-season. And they might consider taking a multivitamin to serve as an insurance agent. And more specifically, if an athlete is found to be dietary-wise deficient in several nutrients, let's say iron, because that's something that I mentioned earlier, if their diet is lacking in iron, second line of defense would make sure that the blood levels are not lacking too. And if they are, that's when you would intervene with an iron supplement. And iron is certainly something that tends to be more common from a deficiency perspective in female athletes, although it certainly can occur in male athletes as well. 
some of the other ones that tend to be lacking is with restricted energy intakes. You get calcium, vitamin D, as well as zinc. Um, and these are all nutrients that are that are important for building bone and muscle as well as supporting immune function. So certainly they have implications for the athlete's health as well as performance in the sporting arena. Well, some great information from both of you, and definitely people can find a lot of great information in the book. It also features recommendations for vegetarian, diabetic, master's level, and injured athletes, and uh, also presents information on hundreds of supplements providing performance benefits, current research, recommended dosages, and associated health concerns. If you're looking for a way to gain a competitive edge, trust me, you're going to want to pick up a copy of The Athlete's Guide to Sports Supplements. Kim and Josh, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate you joining us on Kinetic Connections. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Kim Mueller and Josh Hinkst, authors of The Athlete's Guide to Sports Supplements and two of the top experts on today's most popular endurance and strength and power supplements. You can now find The Athlete's Guide to Sports Supplements in bookstores everywhere or by visiting us online at humankinetics.com. On our website, you can also read excerpts from the book and learn more about Kim and Josh. Also now available is the Sports Supplements app, providing detailed description of nine vitamins and minerals, ten proteins and amino acids, nine carbohydrates and fatty acids, and 21 different herbs and botanicals. Compatible with the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, the app also features professional supplement recommendations for more than 15 specific sports and activities. You can now find it in the Apple App Store. We appreciate your feedback about Kinetic Connections. If you have questions or comments, please email us at publicity at hkusa.com. That's publicity at hkusa.com. I'm Maury Williamson, Marketing and Publicity Manager at Human Kinetics. Our engineer was Roger Francisco. We appreciate you joining us for this edition of Kinetic Connections.